Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to the Burning Books podcast where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. We're into the fourth episode of the To Trilogy or Not To Trilogy season. And so far, we've gone through volumes of trilogies by Richard Ford, Amitav Ghosh, and Elena Ferrante, with Josip Novakovic, Ford Maddox Ford, and Roddy Doyle still to come. Today, we're looking at Pat Barker's Regeneration, which was the first volume of her Regeneration trilogy. When I was considering making a season of trilogies, it was this book that first came to mind. I had previously read Barker's Another World, which some considered a fourth part of her trilogy, a sort of bonus track, and I loved it. So, how would the first of the series, published in 1992, treat me? Before picking up the first volume of this trilogy, I knew one thing, that it centered around the Great War, the war to end all wars, and for me, that was enough. When I think of the Great War, I think instantly of two of the best books I've read ever. One is All Quiet on the Western Front by Eric Maria Remarque, which goes by a terser and better title in the original German, which can be translated as No News in the West. And for all the advanced press that comes with reading a book of that stature, which can often dampen or overshadow the work itself, All Quiet still rings clear. Its reputation is as an anti-war book, but in my view it's much more than that. It's a hard and clear look at the world, the entire world, through the eyes of a soldier. The second book on the subject of the Great War is the non-fiction Rites of Spring, which is just one sick piece of literary excellence. Written by the cultural historian Modris Eckstein's, who I'm proud to say is a former prof of mine, Rites of Spring uses Remarque's novel and many other sources from that period, including the diaries of a number of soldiers, many of whom were also the poets and novelists of the time. Focusing on Paris and Berlin, Rites of Spring looks at the First World War as the great conduit of modernism, an expression of the avant-garde in the form of a war that many Europeans at that time actually wanted. And by wanted, I mean they foamed with anticipation for it, a sort of anti-civilization cataclysm. If Thomas Mann really did say that a nation that makes Death in Venice a bestseller is looking for a war, then he was right. Barker's novel starts with one person who says he doesn't want that war. Not anymore. What begins regeneration is an excerpt from a document called A Soldier's Dedication, and it's by Siegfried Sassoon, poet, VC-winning soldier. The declaration, which was read out in the House of Commons in July of 1917, goes as follows. Finished with the war, a soldier's declaration. I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority, because I believe the war is being deliberately prolonged by those who have the power to end it. I am a soldier convinced that I am acting on behalf of soldiers. I believe that this war upon which I entered as a war of defense and liberation has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I believe that the purposes for which I and my fellow soldiers entered upon this war should have been so clearly stated as to have made it impossible to change them, and that, had this been done, the objects which actuated us would now be attainable by negotiation. 
I have seen and endured the suffering of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. I am not protesting against the conduct of the war, but against the political errors and insincerities for which the fighting men are being sacrificed. On behalf of those who are suffering now, I make this protest against the deception which is being practiced on them. It's an anti-war statement, right? Well, not exactly. The author remains a soldier, not against war as such, or even against the prosecution of war as it was practiced, but more against the continuation of this war under its current circumstances. It is the loss of any sense of the goal of this war, whatever it may once have been, that has caused Sassoon to act. For now he sees the only goal, or the inevitable outcome of this war, as mere purposeless suffering. So you could say it's not war, but more the political errors against which Sassoon rebels. But that would just be the beginning of the analysis. Much of the rest of this novel, Regeneration, reads between the lines of Sassoon's declaration. At this point, I can no longer resist mentioning that Siegfried Sassoon is related to Vidal Sassoon. That's right, from Baghdad to China to the trenches of this war to cutting Mia Farrow's hair live on television. The immediate result of Siegfried Sassoon's declaration was that it got Sassoon sent to Craig Lockhart. That's one word, not a person's name. Craig Lockhart is an asylum for the mentally ill just outside Edinburgh, Scotland. Going there wasn't Sassoon's idea. It was the idea of his friend Robert Graves. Yes, that Robert Graves of I, Claudius, of Claudius the God, etc. The cameos are heating up already and we're not even out of chapter one. Graves thinks that by making this declaration, Sassoon is asking for a court-martial, at least, and possibly imprisonment or worse. So Graves steers Sassoon to an asylum where his mental fitness is placed under question, which means, conveniently, that the army won't have to take all that anti-war stuff seriously. Sassoon rebels, sort of. He goes up north to the hospital at Craig Lockhart, but he insists he doesn't belong there. The thing is, though, he is ill. And the hallucinations? The corpses in Piccadilly? A long silence. Like so many soldiers, Sassoon suffers from the newly diagnosed, newly conceptualized trauma of shell shock. And this is where the camera pans out. The character of Siegfried Sassoon is still key to the book, but he's not central. At the center is the psychiatrist who takes care of him, and many of the others at the asylum. That doctor, also an historical figure, is called William Rivers. Rivers, a real name, of course, but I'm thinking immediately of Heart of Darkness, the boat heading up the river, going to stranger and more terrifying and less real places. This is what Rivers does with his patients, practicing his psychotherapy à l'anglaise. Craig Lockhart, the hospital, is a vibrant place, though vibrant mostly in its grimness. Barker is excellent when she's describing the symptoms of shell shock among the various patients, not just in the details of their hallucinations, but in the way she slyly includes these hallucinatory episodes in the deceptively prosaic setting of the hospital. For this example, we go to the lunchroom, where Sassoon is arranging a game of golf when some commotion takes place. Do you play golf? I'm sorry? I asked if you played golf. Small blue eyes, nibbled gingery mustache, an RAMC badge. He held out his hand. Ralph Anderson. Sassoon shook hands and introduced himself. Yes, I do. Ah, then we might have a game. I'm afraid I haven't brought my clubs. Some of the best courses in the country are around here. 
Sassoon had opened his mouth to reply when a commotion started near the door. As far as he could tell, somebody seemed to have been sick. At any rate, a thin, yellow-skinned man was on his feet, choking and gagging. A couple of VADs ran across to him, clucking, fussing, flapping ineffectually at his tunic with a napkin, until eventually they had the sense to get him out of the room. The swing doors closed behind them. A moment, silence, and then, as if nothing had happened, the buzz of conversation rose again. There are many writers who are said to create smooth, the preferred term is seamless, transitions between past and present, the normal and abnormal, healthy and unhealthy. But Barker pulls this off so skillfully, with such a minimum of effort, never breaking from her fluid style. One of the effects is that, in a number of examples, it's hard to know what's hallucination and what's reality, which is exactly the problem for the shell-shocked patients. So we have writing where form beautifully delivers function. River's job is to bring the garbled memories of trauma to the surface, to consciousness, where, it is hoped, they can be reasoned with and eventually disposed of. For the sensitive doctor, however, this presents a problem. In advising them to remember the traumatic events that had led to their being sent here, he was, in effect, inflicting pain, and doing so in pursuit of a treatment that he knew to be still largely experimental. What does this mean in actual terms? What does this process produce? Following is a record of one of Rivers' sessions with a soldier called Billy Pryor, whose shock is particularly terrible. Pryor's recollection is elicited under hypnosis which he asks Rivers to perform on him because he hasn't been able to access his memories otherwise. Here we have those traumatic memories from prior. Listener discretion is advised. He'd gone perhaps three fire bays along when he heard the whoop of a shell and spinning around, saw the scrawl of dusty brown smoke already drifting away. He thought it had gone clear over, but then he heard a cry and, feeling sick in his stomach, he ran back. Logan was there already. It must have been Logan's cry he heard, for nothing in that devastation could have had a voice. A conical black hole, still smoking, had been driven into the side of the trench. Of the kettle, the frying pan, the carefully tended fire, there was no sign, and not much of sodden and towers either, or not much that was recognizable. There was a pile of sandbags and shovels close by, stacked against the parapet by a returning work party. He reached for a shovel. Logan picked up a sandbag and held it open, and he began shoveling soil, flesh, and splinters of blackened bone into the bag. As he shoveled, he retched. He felt something jar against his teeth and saw that Logan was offering him a rum bottle. He forced down bile and rum together. Logan kept his face averted as the shoveling went on. He was swearing under his breath, steadily, blasphemously, obscenely, inventively. Somebody came running. Don't stand there gawping, man, Logan said. Go and get some lime. They'd almost finished when Pryor shifted his position on the duckboards, glanced down, and found himself staring into an eye. Delicately, like somebody selecting a particularly choice morsel from a plate, he put his thumb and forefinger down through the duckboards. His fingers touched the smooth surface and slid before they managed to get a hold. He got it out, transferred it to the palm of his hand, 
and held it out towards Logan. He could see his hand was shaking, but the shaking didn't seem to be anything to do with him. What am I supposed to do with this gobstopper? He saw Logan blink and knew he was afraid. At last, Logan reached out, grasped his shaking wrist, and tipped the eye into the bag. The title of the novel, Regeneration, comes from the experiments that were conducted by Rivers with Henry Head, another historical figure, back in London. The term regeneration referred to nerve regeneration, speaking of nerves literally here. And because the experiments required an expert to observe the process of injury and recovery, it was in fact Henry Head who severed, sutured, and tried to regenerate his own nerves. Rivers' part in the experiment was to stimulate, by physical means, these regenerating nerves. Head's experiment is a coarse and disturbing process, where the nerve goes from sensing only extreme stimuli to eventually feeling subtler gradations. At times, a pinprick would cause severe and prolonged pain. Rivers had often felt distress at the amount of pain he was causing, but it would not, in life, have occurred to him to stop the experiment for that reason. All this was preparation for the regeneration work that Rivers would be doing at Craig Lockhart. As with any good title, and all great titles, I guess, the word means many things as well. One is the way that the war regenerated, in the sense of recreated, the individual, specifically the male individual. The relationships between men who come through this war are different from those that existed before. In one sense, as Barker writes provocatively, it made the fraternal into the maternal. One of the paradoxes of the war, one of the many, was that this most brutal of conflicts should set up a relationship between officers and men that was domestic, caring, maternal. And that wasn't the only trick the war had played. Mobilization, the great adventure. They'd been mobilized into holes in the ground, so constricted they could hardly move. And the great adventure, the real-life equivalent of all the adventure stories they'd devoured as boys, consisted of crouching in a dugout, waiting to be killed. The war that had promised so much, in the way of manly activity, had actually delivered feminine passivity, and on a scale that their mothers and sisters had scarcely known. No wonder they broke down. And the way these soldiers broke down, shell shock, was also not regarded as manly, actually quite the opposite. It was seen as womanly to be hurt without showing scars, and womanly to be incapacitated by feelings, feelings that were out of control. Add to that a rampant fear of homosexuality, and the standing of these war-damaged men is subject to further suspicion. In war, you've got this enormous emphasis on love between men, comradeship, and everybody approves. But at the same time, there's always this little niggle of anxiety. Is it the right kind of love? Then again, as one of Barker's characters points out, the entire notion of English masculinity might be without any real basis. All in all, what you have is a valorization of the soldier and a destruction of the man who plays that part. The perversity is that this new generation of men has transformed the asylum and the trenches from places of peril to what they consider to be safe havens. <laughs> 
So is this why Sassoon, having vociferously disapproved of the war, wants to get back to the trenches as soon as possible? Because between the lines of his letter and in his subsequent actions, that's what becomes clear. He wants to be with his men. It's a reality as disturbing as any of the nightmares and hallucinations of the wounded soldiers. For his part, Rivers is torn, so when it comes time to decide whether or not to declare Sassoon fit, which could send him back to the meat grinder ASAP, it's not clear what Rivers will do. Same goes for the other characters in this book. Nobody's motivations or actions is entirely discernible, and often they're self-contradictory in the way that the mind is often self-contradictory. Form-serving function once again. It's brilliant. Which is basically what I thought of regeneration. If the question is to trilogy or not to trilogy, then the answer is obvious. Bring on part two of the trilogy, The Eye in the Door. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Ford Maddox Ford's Some Do Not, which is part of the Parades End trilogy, another trilogy that takes place during the Great War, although it was written more than a half century before Barker's novels. Burning Books is part of the Latopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to latopia.com, which is spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. And if you want to contact me through Facebook, the address is facebook.com slash Eric Beck Rubin. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. It's not vitamins at all. It's not vitamins. And as always, go Jays.